The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So today we have uh, Colossians 3:18 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, in verse 17, just for context sake, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he talks about uh, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and so what he's saying is like, like, as we live out our union with Christ, Christ bears on every aspect of our life. Every aspect. And so naturally, we see Apostle Paul here move into life at home and life at work because that's 90% of life. And if you're in Southern California, maybe that's 80% because the other 10% is being on the road, stuck in traffic, <laughs> right? But it's, that's everyday life. Home, work, back home, back to work, right? And, and, and God says that Christ's supremacy, it bears on your Mondays as you, as you stare at your computer screen. That Christ's supremacy, it bears on your evenings when you come home from work. Maybe you got kids to bathe and put down to bed. That Christ's supremacy, it, it, it bears on that pile of laundry or dishes that you keep walking past and you know you, want, you need to do it, but you really don't want to do it. That Christ's supremacy... It bears when mom and dad tell you to get off your screen and, and clean your room. And, and so we see that Christ's supremacy, as, as high and lofty as it is, you know, and, and we have high theology in, in, in this letter, that it comes and it bears on everyday life. There's no such thing as part-time followers of Christ. We're all full-time here. You know, there's, there's no compartmentalizing our faith and King Jesus, he's not only present here at church, King Jesus is present at home and King Jesus is present at our workplace. And so we learn here what it's, what it's like for Jesus to visit our marriages, for, for Jesus to visit our parent-child relationships and, 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 and what it looks like for Jesus to visit our workplace. Now as I get into this, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna... I'm gonna I'm going to have to sadly say that I, I'm not going to be able to get into the bond servants, masters. There's just too much here. And I hope at some point we, you guys can cover that. But we'll, we're going to cover the first, the first two, marriage and parent-child relationships. Um, last month, an article recently came out about a government official. And, and this article revealed that she was part of this religious group that believed in male headship and the biblical roles of men and women, husband and wife, I should say. And you can imagine, people reacted. People were not happy. And, and for a lot of people, it was concerning. It was even dangerous. It was said that uh, this person had immersed herself in ideas that are oppressive to women. Um, and, uh, and that's all that to say that the opening verse here, it, 
it's a difficult word to accept today, you know? Um, you know, when Pastor Matt was assigning me the passages, I looked at the last one, I'm like, oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for that one. <laughs> a wife submit to your husband. Uh, <laughs> wife submitting to your husbands, it may be fitting in the Lord, but it's blasphemy in the world. Uh, people bristle at this, you know? People scoff at this. People read this, they gasp, actually. And it's like, it's like sandpaper on, on their ears. They don't even want to hear this. Um, and maybe there's some of us here, we're reading that, we struggle through that, right? Maybe some of us feel like, can the Bible really be saying that? Can it really be saying that? Maybe it's, maybe it's saying something else. And I don't blame you. You know, in the world we live in, this, that's, that's a tough, abrasive word right there. Um, but as a minister of the word, I have to say, not only is it here, but it's mentioned multiple times in scripture. Like, we have to deal with this, right? Um, and it's very hard to undo the meaning of this verse without also undoing the integrity and authority of the scripture. And for those of us who are reading this, especially that opening verse, and you're struggling, I, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to come off saying, get over it. You know, some, some Christians are like that. Like, oh, just get over it, you know? Um, I don't, I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to encourage you to study the scriptures yourselves. Yes, I'm going I'm to preach this word, but I want you to study the scriptures yourself. And also study scripture's overall teaching uh, about women, beginning with Genesis. That women are made in the image of God. They have dignity. And there is that equality with men. Man was made in the image of God. Male and female, they were created, right? And we see in the scriptures God's affection and elevation of women. Let's just go down the list of some of them. Sarah, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Hannah, Abigail, Esther, Mary, of course, Mary Magdalene, just to name a few, right? And we see all throughout Scripture God's compassion towards widows, to those who are barren, uh, to prostitutes. And this, and this was written the, during the time of the ancient world where, where women were considered uh, property or, or second-class citizens. The God of the Bible is a friend, advocate, protector of women. And we see that confirmed so beautifully in Jesus and in his ministry as he relates to the Samaritan woman, as he relates uh, to widows, as he relates to sinful women, prostitutes. And so it's no wonder that actually in the early days of the church, it drew so many women. The early church received so many women to the point where even the Romans noticed this peculiarity, uh, so much so that, that they were like, this Christianity, this minority sect, it, it, it seems like a religion for women. Um, and let's not overlook this, that uh, 
after Paul wrote Colossians, and yes, this very verse, women didn't start leaving the church in droves. Isn't that interesting? But actually, more and more women started coming into the church. Huh. That, at the very least, should cause us to pause, to say, perhaps we're missing something here. Perhaps wives submitting to their husbands isn't as evil or as oppressive as we might think. You know, the Bible goes so far as to say, um, it is fitting in the Lord. It is fitting in the Lord for wives to submit to husbands. Now, that's going to enrage some people. That's going to discourage other people. But can we explore why? Why is it fitting in the Lord? Well, first of all, the Word of God states that God created marriage, and he did establish an order in marriage. The husband would be the head of his wife, and not because he's better, but because simply of the order of creation according to Genesis. That man was formed first. That woman came from man. Bible says that's the explanation right there. It's not like your husband is better than you. But you go back to the created order in Genesis. And this reasoning is not, I would argue, not totally foreign to us. Because in Eastern cultures especially, you give deference to those who are older than you simply because they were before you that they entered into this world before you, and therefore, there's an honor that you just immediately give them. And so it's not completely foreign. And let's think about this idea of submission itself, because I think we have to revisit that. You know, we, we automatically think, or, or in the world, we, the world automatically thinks that submission means lower, that submission means degrading servitude. It means putting a person in a vulnerable position or place of exploitation and oppression. But before we go there, can we think first of the Lord himself? It is fitting in the Lord. Can we think about the Lord himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, that his whole life was a life of submission to the Father? Can we say that? that his, life was, his whole life was submission to the Father. This is what Jesus says. These, these are striking words. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Boy, that seems restrictive, but Jesus comes under that. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus also says, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Our Lord, when he lived this earthly life, his whole life was one of submission. I can do nothing on my own. I do nothing of my own accord. Whatever the Father tells me, that is what I do. My food is to do the will of my Father. It's a complete and utter submission. And in, to the world, it seems oppressive. It seems restrictive. But here's Jesus joyfully embracing submission. And it did not degrade him. 
It did not make him less God. It did not upset the unity and the equality in the Trinity. And so if our Lord humbly accepted submission, should we really be bothered by it as much as we are? Something to think about. And then as Christians, we are to submit to Christ. And perhaps that's actually putting it quite mildly because the words of our Lord are actually more extreme. He says, take up your cross and die. Hey, hey, not just submit, take up your cross and die. The Christian life is actually absolute surrender. Maybe surrender is even a better word. It's a surrender to Christ. And all that to say that submission, that, that concept, it's part of our faith and our vocabulary. We, we understand that it's an important part of our walk with the Lord, submission. It's not negative, it's, it's what we do. It's what we do. And if we think about it, we're called to submit to God. We're called to submit to his word. We're called to submit to governing authorities. We're called to submit to our parents when we're younger. We're called, uh, even in our text here, to submit to our boss or our supervisor, those who are over us at work. Submission actually is a very Christian concept, and it's not a woman's issue. It's a Christian one. All that to say is that when we hear that word submit, it shouldn't, like, shock us. There's a reason why in the word it, the Spirit says it is fitting in the Lord. You know, Christians, we, we get this. We understand this. This, this, is, this is the air we breathe. You know, we follow Jesus. We submit to him. And then just, just, for this, just looking even at the flow of the context, do you remember what are some of the stuff we were to put on? Humility. Meekness. Like someone who is humble and meek can actually naturally make the move into submitting without raising a fist. It is fitting in the Lord. And I have to emphasize in the Lord because there's a qualifier here. When it says in the Lord, it teaches us the limits on submission. You know, a wife to submit to her husband, that's not a blind submission. Submission does not require you to jump into sin. If, if submitting means entering into sin, you do not have to submit to that. If your husband is leading you into sin, you don't have to submit to that. In the Lord. In the Lord. Now, I understand that there are others here. You read that. You read this. You believe it. You, you accept the teaching, but it doesn't make it any easier to do it every day. And it's likely hard because you usually think about the one you're directly submitting to, which is your husband. And maybe some of you here are thinking, my husband is neither good nor respectable. And that may be true. And maybe the reality is that he is lazy, harsh, selfish, unspiritual. But I want to encourage you in this. It is fitting in the Lord. In the Lord. 
when you think about this call, don't think about your husband, which is what, you know, many wives think about first, their husband. But you think about Jesus. And you, you, you obey this word for Jesus' sake, not because your husband is or is not respectable. You do it for Jesus' sake. You submit in his name. Now, some of you are listening to that going, oh, that's a big-time grace move to make, to, to submit to my husband. You don't know who my husband is. But can't we do that as gospel believers? Can't we make a grace move as people who are people of grace and who receive the grace of God? That is, a, that is a grace move right there. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's a grace move. But can't we make that move as we think about God and his grace towards us? And so consider that as, as we think about wives, submit to your husbands. Let's move on to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Might be less controversial today, right, than the first uh, verse, but do, do you realize this, this may have shocked some of the Colossians at the time? You know, in ancient Rome, uh, the male head of household was called the uh, pater familias. And the pater familias had unquestioned, unchallenged, ultimate authority over his household. He actually had the power of life and death over his household. You can imagine some of these pater familiases ruling their family or their household with a sense of impunity. Like, man, I could do whatever I want. And this word challenged the status quo. God was saying to them, you, you cannot treat your wife however way you want. Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. And we see here that men lead in their headship. They lead by way of love. By way of love. When we think of leadership, we think having the answers, fixing the problems, ordering people around. We speak. People move. Like, that's leadership. But let's consider Christ's own headship over us. He led by, by way of love. That's the beauty of our Lord. That he came to this earth and he served us. Wow. And then he sacrificed himself. He went to the cross. He laid down his life for us. And all that because, boy, he cherished us. He loved us. And, and, and to this day, he nourishes us and strengthens us. And that is the pattern that we follow as husbands. We lead by way of love. And then the Apostle Paul adds, and do not be harsh. And I think here Paul is thinking about the certain expressions of love that he previously mentioned, the things that we are to put on. And I think he's thinking about things like kindness and meekness. And patience. And when God says, put these on, meekness, kindness, patience. Now, if your husband in this room, apply them first to your wife. When you're thinking, oh, okay, I got to put on this and okay, that. And where should that first place of application be applied to? To your wife. Love her. Do not be harsh with her. And I think husbands need to hear this. 
You know, if wives in the flesh are slow and reluctant to submit to their, uh, to their husbands, we men are just as slow and reluctant to really love our wives uh, well. As men and as husbands, we tend to be unloving and harsh. And there's a word for people like that. It's called being a jerk. It's called being a jerk. And, you know, Laura, my wife, she, she keeps telling me that I need to really watch how I come off. She says, at home, I naturally sound harsh and scary. And I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm all in denial. But she says, no, you, you come off that way. You, you need to be careful. And, and, you know, when she says that, I need to pause because, like, that's in me. I mean, that's in me. That tendency is in me. And for some of you men, that tendency might be in you as well. Like, if we're not walking with Jesus, if we're not on our gospel A game, the, the jerkishness is just coming out left and right. You know, and we, we need to be aware. So if, if you're a guy, you're married, you're asking, God, how do I honor you in my life? Just look across the room in your house to the person that you're married to and start in your house and, and love your wife well. Love her well. Now, there, there's a word to children here. Uh, children, obey your parents and everything. I might have mentioned this before, but these letters, if you, if you go on to chapter 4, you'll find out that these letters were read while the church was gathered. And it's interesting here because Paul assumed that, hey, children were present, you know, and in the room, and he takes time to address them. And he says, obey your parents and everything. The fifth commandment is still in effect. He reminds everyone, it made the top ten, right? It's in there. Number five, like you got to honor your father and your mother. And he's saying it's not a small thing to obey your parents. It's not a small thing. And on the flip side, it's not a small thing when you disobey your parents. Children, are there children in the room here? There's some. One of the best ways to please God is by obeying your parents. It's by obeying your parents. And a child who knows Jesus obeys their parents. Now, I feel like this is a rare message today. Because in the parent-child relationship, it seems like all the responsibility is laid on the parents. You know, children are innocent, not held accountable to anything. If the children grow up with problems, oh, it's the parents' fault. You know, you got people coming out of counseling sessions, and it's like, my parents screwed me up. My parents screwed me up. It's surprising here. God says children got to be held accountable, you know? And sometimes people's lives are a mess because they did not obey their parents. They did not honor them. They did not listen to them. I think that has to be said. And, and God, he doesn't pull any punches. He's, he's not one-sided. You know, the world just goes after the parents. Oh, you know, it was my child, did my parents, this and that. And some of us have had not so good parents. That's, the, that's true. But it's like, it's so one-sided. And here God's like, no, children, I'm speaking to you too. They have a responsibility to obey. 
People talk so much about, oh, there's, you know, these terrible parents over here. I'm going to say this. There's terrible children, too. There's abusive parents. There's also rebellious children. There's both. And here, God, I mean, he's, he's speaking plainly, and he speaks to the children. Obey your parents in everything. In everything. Wow, that's a tough word, too, for children. You know, in some sense, the wives, they've received the hard word here. Children receive a hard word here. Obey in everything. So it's not only when, you know, your parents are saying, okay, read your Bible, go to church, share, be kind. But also when they say, hey, go to bed. When, and when they say, get off the screen. And when they say, do your chores. Do your homework. Obey in everything. Children, obey not only when it makes sense to you. I'm going to say something crazy. Even when it doesn't make sense to you to obey. Obey even when you disagree. Even when you think you know better. Obey in everything. Maybe there's some children in the room going, are you serious? Are you serious? That's crazy. Can I tell you what's even crazier? That Jesus submitted to Joseph and Mary. That's crazy. I think that is one of the most stunning passages in Scripture. It says Jesus submitted to his parents. What? If there was one kid who knew always better than his parents, it was Jesus. You don't think Jesus knew how to do life better than Joseph and Mary? Like a better time to fetch the water at the well, right? A better way to set the table, a better way to measure and cut wood. And it says he submitted to his parents. I love the Bible because every word counts, right? It's just, it's just a passing verse. It's stunning, though, if, if we just kind of internalize that. And maybe some of you kids, you're saying to me, oh, Pastor Andy, you don't know my parents. My parents don't deserve my obedience. And you know what I'll say to you? You're, prob- you're probably right. They-, they probably don't. But we don't obey based on how worthy our parents are. You obey because you love Jesus. You obey because you want to please God. And what, what, what does... The word of God say, for this pleases the Lord. You don't do it because they're worthy of it or, okay, they, they've been better. My parents have been better this week, so I'll do it. You do it because you want to please the Lord. And so you're not looking at your mom and your dad. You're looking at Jesus. For Jesus' sake, I will do this. I will do this. There's a word for the parents too, though, right? Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke them. Do not, in some sense, stir up uh, their anger. Let me talk a little bit about the ways that as parents we provoke our kids and stir up their anger. Sometimes it's our own anger that stirs up their anger. It's our own anger that provokes them. Some of us, we just blow up on our kids, and we think we can do that because we're bigger, they're smaller. We're at home, you have the authority, you can get away with it, you just blow up on your kids. It's just, you feel like it's free game. 
And so sometimes we provoke our kids with our own anger. Some of us, we don't blow up, but there's this low-grade anger all day, every day, and it's in your face, and it's in your tone. And that can build up and provoke our kids. And, we, and a lot of it is because we're just failing to put off and put on, you know, that we've been covering in chapter 3? We've been failing to put off and put on with our children, right? You know, the Bible says, put off anger, right? Put on kindness and patience and humility. And we're not thinking about that in our parent-child relationship, and we need to. So sometimes we provoke by our own anger. Here's the other ways that we provoke our children. Trying to be the Holy Spirit. You're just trying to force that heart change, you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk my mouth off until they change. I'm going to corner them until they change, like, right on the spot. And so we just keep going, right? No, and you're demanding that they change on the spot, like, now. You need to be sorry now, like, right now, you know? And, and so... We try to do the Holy Spirit's job. And when we do that, we provoke our kids. When we try to be the Holy Spirit, what ends up happening is we become impatient, we get louder, we get angrier, and we provoke our children. Here's another way that we uh, provoke, a third way. It's, it's our, idolat our idolatries are unchecked. And, and, you know, they're just growing, growing like a weed in our hearts, like the idol of respect or image or control or success. And this is what happens. When our children are threatening our idols, we go ballistic, right? When, if, if you have the idol of respect and they're just totally disrespecting you, and that's wrong, and that needs to be called out. Called out. But if you have an idol of respect, you're going to blow up. When our idols get threatened, we get violent in one way or another, with our words or some other way, right? Kids threaten our idol of control. And we don't, we don't react well to that. And then we end up provoking our kids, right? Right, for... For some of us, we have the idol of success, and our kids are connected to that. They need to be successful. And if they're threatening that, not flourishing on the ball field or in the classroom, we start getting crazy on our kids, and then we begin to provoke them. And all, and all these, what I would call over stuff happens, we overreact. We become overbearing. We become overinvolved, and we suffocate our kids. We provoke them. Small things turn into big things. And then there's, you know, when our idols are threatened, there's no grace there. There's no space for grace. I mean, we're just after them, right? And so sometimes it's our idolatries that cause us to provoke our kids. And the thing is, when we provoke them, it first starts off with anger, but what does it ultimately lead to? Discouragement. That's what the Word of God says, right? Do not provoke your children lest they become, what's the end result? Discouraged. 
lest they become discouraged. When we provoke our kids, we crush their spirit, right? They lose their will to live. They lose motivation for life, for their spiritual walk. I remember um, when I was young, I went on a camping uh, trip with, um, with another friend's, our family went on a camping trip with, with another friend's family. And that other f- family had like a boat and stuff like that. So you can imagine with camping, there's a lot of stuff that you need to do, like put a tent up, like, you know, when you're docking the boat, there's all these things you have to do, you know, got, got to tether it to the dock and, and all this kind of stuff. And so here's the dad, he has his boat and, you know, he needs to, it needs to be docked and all this stuff. And, and here's my friend, you know, trying to help his dad. And boy, at every little mistake, his dad's like, you dummy? Like, you dum-dum? Like, left and right. And I could see, like, he was being humiliated in front of everyone. You know, his father was just tearing him down. And I could see it was crushing his spirit. You know what? Seeing that crushed my spirit. You dummy. And just, just, just wouldn't, it was, wouldn't relent. I mean, it was just, just constant. And, and you could just see it, like, on my friend's face, just like his, his, his face fell, you know? And it just affects him. Sometimes we don't realize what we're doing to our children. God loves us enough to give us this warning, because if... If we don't stop, we're going to lose our kids. This is such a loving word to us, for those of us who are parents. Can I give you a way forward as parents? First of all, um, pray. Prayer is important. And let me guide you. What should you pray about? First of all, repent of your idols that cause you to provoke your kids. You need to start there. Repent of those idols, identify them, repent of them. And then secondly, as you pray, look to the Spirit to help change the heart of your child. And you know, when you pray, guess what? You stay in your lane, and you don't, and you don't, you don't get out of your lane and try to be the Holy Spirit anymore. Prayer helps you to stay in your lane and depend on the Holy Spirit Good piece of parental advice, pray more, yell less. All right? Pray more, yell less. Uh, a second thing, listen to your kids. Yeah, they need to submit to you. But listen to them. Because kids who feel listened to, like re- who feel really listened to, they don't, they're not provoked. And they're not discouraged. They, f- they feel loved and respected. So listen to your children. And thirdly, just remember our Heavenly Father, who's so good. Our Heavenly Father is not exacting towards us. He's, he's not that calculating curmudgeon, right? That's not our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is not austere, easily annoyed, easily exasperated, where his patience is always running thin. That is not our Heavenly Father. Who's our Heavenly Father? The one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That is our Heavenly Father. Can we remember that? 
And how do we know that God really is that? Is he really that? Of course. Because when we look at Christ, the one who came, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And we think about what Christ has done. While we were yet sinners, he didn't tear us down. While we were yet sinners, he didn't point the finger and condemn us. While we were yet sinners, what did he do? Romans 5, he died for us. He died for us. And so here's our Heavenly Father, so merciful and gracious, parenting us in that way. Can we not also parent that way towards our children? You know, if Christ is supreme, let him be supreme in everyday life, at home, at work, every, in our marriages, right? between parent and child. And so today, when you guys go home and look at your spouse across the room, remember Jesus. When you're engaging conversations with your spouse this week about small things, scheduling stuff, or even big things, gotta make a big decision. Let's remember Jesus and what he calls us to do as husband and wife. You know, when parents, if, if you have young kids, start your kids' bedtime routines, and you know that's the start of war, <laughs> right? You know. Remember Jesus in that, okay? When we deal with our children's mistakes, when they mess up in front of us, let's remember Jesus. And children, when parents tell you to get off the screen and do your homework, Let's remember Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'll come before you and we delight in our union with our Lord who is so great. We are thankful for all the riches that we have in him. How is it that we have been raised up with him to the heavenly places? That we have every spiritual blessing in him. How is it that while we were yet sinners, he, that he died for us? How is that? And yet that's all ours. And yet out of this union, Lord, you, you call us to put off the flesh, put on the new life that we have in him. And you tell us to put on these things every day in our marriages between parents and children, even at work. God, I pray that our faith would bear in all these things. Forgive us for the way that we divide and separate life, that we're two-faced, and sometimes we're one way at church, one way at home. God, we, we, in, we invite Christ to be Lord over our lives in every way. And that when whatever we do, we do it in his name. Thank you for showing us what that looks like at home and at work. And God, I pray that indeed the light of, of Christ would shine brightly wherever we are. And I, I pray that the first recipients of, of the blessing of us being united to Christ that it would be those close to us, 
those that we share life with. God, I pray for not only revival in our own hearts, but revival in our homes. Lord, we pray that you would bring order and love into our homes. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.